Sometimes a screenwriter comes along and writes one of those movies that's just absolutely amazing, hits the moment in time, captures something, connects with audiences, becomes a classic. It doesn't happen often, but it happens. But what's even more rare is when a screenwriter like that continues to write those kinds of movies. Screenwriting is just, I don't know, it's a tough gig in this town, and it's tough to repeat success. Oftentimes because you're not also a producer and a director. In the instance of today's guest, Paul Schrader, that success has been repeated. Paul Schrader has been a screenwriter at the forefront of some of the most interesting character studies and films for decades. He burst on the scene with Taxi Driver, which was a defining role for Robert De Niro, a defining movie for Martin Scorsese, and the three of them sort of shot into the stratosphere. So it's amazing to talk to Paul Schrader today about where he's been since Taxi Driver, how he feels it's changed the culture. I mean, there are so many imitators. It was so far ahead of its time. And he talks about all of that today and his latest film, The Card Counter, how that, all these years later, is an iteration on some of the same ideas that he's been looking so closely at and continuing to explore since the mid-70s when he first burst onto the scene. But let's not forget that there are so many Paul Schrader movies in between then and now that he's directed, that he's wrote, he's worked with so many greats, and he has amazing insight into the process. Stick around for the end because Paul gets into some really interesting career choices regarding Taxi Driver 2, why it didn't happen or almost did, and what Taxi Driver video games might have been. I mean, the guy's seen it all, and he has some good stories to tell. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you about this movie and, and your career in general. Fire away. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, this character at the heart of this movie feels like it has a, he, he has a lot in common with a lot of the, the sort of these tortured uh, protagonists that you've written in the past. They are in a kind of a purgatory or a hell sometimes. Is there something that draws you into a story? Is there something you're continuing to revisit? Is there something unfinished there that, that, that interests you creatively? It's essentially a literary tradition, not a film tradition. When I first had the notion of Taxi Driver, which I wrote as self-therapy, I realized that the idea was coming out of literature, out of Dostoevsky first, out of 20th century literature, then out of Sartre, and then out of Camus. And these are all stories where one person told, talked continuously. And they are all stories of existential despair. And it's not a tradition that has much of a history of movies. And I kind of stumbled onto that formula in Taxi Driver, the mixture of existential fiction and Braysonian films. And so I've returned to it periodically over the years. In fact, I'm going to do another one in uh, January, this time He's a horticulturalist. He's a gardener. Yeah. 
It's a lot different than a than a gambler, although yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I still the same attention to detail. So, well, what, what I realized was that this is all always about waiting, and it's being alone in a room with your own thoughts, wearing the mask of your occupation, waiting. And, and there's a line, taxi driver. It says the days are all the same. They go on and on, and then something happens. Mm. And there's almost the same line in card cutter. You wait, you wait, you wait, and then something happens. Yeah. And uh, in the case of these characters, the case of First Reformed, a young man comes into his life here. Also, a, a different young man comes into his life. That's what you've been waiting for. You're waiting for some event to crystallize this blankness you find yourself trapped in and maybe get you out of it. So that's the sort of formula. And I've done it with a taxi driver and a gigolo and a drug dealer. and a So you start with, do you typically start with the character? Because you say in the novel tradition. So it's sort of like you return to that character in a new space. And well, you, you, you start, it's a metaphor and a problem. And sometimes the problem presents itself before the metaphor, like a, the problem is young male urban loneliness. Then now you're just looking for the metaphor and also in a taxi cab. Or it's the other way around. You see an occupation, like card playing. You say, There's a, that occupation has metaphorical strength. Mm. What problem would it serve? At any given time, you have a number of problems that are running through your head. And one of them was this whole notion of guilt and responsibility. We live in a society where nobody likes to be responsible for anything. I didn't lie. I misspoke. <laughs> you know, I didn't touch her inappropriately. I made a bad choice. <laughs> There's a there's a thread about there's something there's a thread in all of this about forgiveness self forgiveness and uh, and 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 amends there's an amends but they they can't they can't wash clean the past there's a lot of dialogue even in Taxi Driver I remember about that that that, that they're trying to clean up what what they bring with them into these situations is that part of this idea Yeah the idea that society has forgiven this guy William Tell he's been a long time in jail. They've said, you know, thank you very much. You did your time. But you know, he doesn't feel that way. He hasn't, he hasn't been punished enough. So now he's got to do the job himself in this sort of half-life. It's amazing that you found that, the self-punishment, in a casino. Because to me, I've always looked at the casino when I walk through them or I'm in them. I think there is a sort of, per- there's a misery to that space. Yeah, and and a lifelessness, but a lot of the world sees it as this is this is a playground. But yeah, you I saw mean, you, that's all those commercials where people are laughing. And <laughs> I've never seen that in a casino. I do, <laughs> I haven't either. <laughs> and I've just seen these sort of zombies watching their slots roll hour upon hour, and um, so I had uh, this metaphor of a card counter, or in the case of poker, odds counter. And then the whole question of guilt and what could it be? 
if it's murder, or homicide, or burglary, it doesn't quite seem sufficient. You have to have done something that cannot be forgiven. Mm. You have to have stained your nation. You have to, and no one will forgive you. And then obviously, then I came to Abu Grant, you know, the shame we feel collectively for what a number of people did individually. Yeah, it's, it takes it to a whole new level from where Taxi Driver was. We know this man was in Vietnam and we know the horrors. But this is a different Abu Ghraib. It's a whole other level of what we know about what someone like this did, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, also, in um, one of my favorite lines is Willem Dafoe says to you, you got the right stuff. And later when he's torturing these guys, he said he was right. I had it in me. And at some point, we all have to acknowledge we have it in us. Mm. You know, some ha- will resist longer than others, but in the end, we have it in us. Yeah, on that, you mentioned this isolated urban male. I think that's the way you put it. Yeah. That's something that I think I- I'm not sure. I don't think I saw, I-, I don't think it existed much in cinema prior to Taxi Driver in the way that it has since. It's something that yeah. is a really popular concept and, and it's almost a plague these days <laughs> in, yeah. real, in the real world. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, when, when I wrote Taxi Driver, we didn't have the word imsel. <laughs> now, uh, we, yeah. was he the original in a weird <laughs> way? But uh, perhaps. But you know, that was a moment that was coming, and I caught the breeze of the zeitgeist. I don't know how I would write that character now, mm. and I've seen and read scripts of people who are trying to knock that off. Yeah. And it doesn't really work that well. It's been done. It was a certain time and place. You have to take it, or like in First Reform, you take it to another level. Yeah, yeah. Of violence. You know, violence against your own church. You know. uh, You know what I think of too, though, is, I mean, I think Raging, I think the Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull is one of the most, human characters from to me and he is so self-destructive and and that's he takes that punishment and that that self whatever he's dealing with out on himself that that internal strife that internal animal thing well you know that's one of the great temptations western culture and christianity which is the temptation to martyrdom it has a lot to do with the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament and Christ sacrifice in the New Testament, that in the blood, you will be washed clean. Now, even though theologically, Christ's sacrifice stands for our own, the temptation to equal his, I can earn my own salvation. I can, uh. whip, my, I can whip myself. I can starve myself. I can lock myself in a monastery. I will earn it. You know, um, that's one of the temptations of Christianity. Huh. Do you think that these characters, I mean, this is, this seems like this kind of overlap between where your background, I think probably Martin Scorsese's background coincide into how you approach these characters and these stories. 
right? And he's a producer on this one too. Was that part of it? Like you guys were kind of reconnecting no, about? No, we're, we're working on another project, which is in hold now because of the the Alabama, I mean the Oklahoma film. Ah, uh, right. Uh, and he won't be finished until another month. And so, but we, we were developing that as a series. And I wrote a Bible in the first episode. And then I just said to him, uh, because I was putting this film together, and you're looking for elements that will help you sell it. Mm-hmm. I, said, I said, Marty, wouldn't it be nice to share a card again? Let's share a card. <laughs> uh, you know, it'll help me get the film made, and it'll be a kind of cool thing to do. And he said, okay. So then, uh, then, so then he became his presentation, and then a couple of weeks later, the agent called and tried to work out the deal. And I said, wait, wait, one deal. I have to marry a favor. He said, yes. I don't see the deal there. <laughs> 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 but it, it, in some way beyond that, was there a, there, there was no like seeing any of this character, this kind of story exploration of, of this well, I mean, Marty certainly knows my work. And, uh, he read the script. And then I had that weird hiatus where the film went in limbo for six months. And I had three-fourths of it shot so I could show it to him with placeholders for the unshot scenes and say, I've got five or six character scenes to do yet. Uh, I can rewrite them. You know, um, what am I missing? Yeah. So, you know, that was useful. What kind of notes, in general, what's your note? Like, you write, you've been writing forever. You're one of the great writers in cinema. What are the things that you look for in notes? Who do you get notes from? <laughs> who do you trust? I well, mean, Mark Scorsese is a good one. But like, who are some other people where you can say, hey, what's what's missing? And and then they get, this is an amazing thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's like when you tell a story to someone. And you get a lack of attention. You don't really care what they say. You you really try to figure out what's underneath. Mm. What's underneath that comment? How they're reacting, like reading their genuine reaction and not listening yeah. to the literal. I mean, what did I do to make them feel anxious in this way? Mm. Is it is it from the text, or is it something that I can add, uh, or is it something I can change? Because often people don't know exactly what they're telling you and you have to try to break through now obviously someone like scorsese who has seen an infinite number of films <laughs> is much better at zeroing in on potential problem than your cousin in <laughs> western michigan <laughs> sure. I mean, and what did he? What did he tell you? Like, what did he? What notes did he give you? No, he said that you know. He said that mainly it was the Oscar Tiffany thing. You know, it's mm. just there's something to get out of that you're not getting. And so I rewrote the scenes that they had together that were coming up. You've you've also collaborated, written for, directed like some of the greatest performers on screen of the last 20, 30, 40 years, like from De Niro to Nicolas Cage, now Oscar Isaac's great. Are there things in these, do you ever write for an actor? Do you try to nulti, like, and you also write stuff that these people really kind of define themselves with in some cases. Do you think about the actor? Do you just, or do you just think? try not to, because it makes you a lazy writer. 
because you're sitting there and you're writing this speech and you imagine Al Pacino reading it and you say, wow, what a great speech. Because <laughs> he's, he's giving speech. it. <laughs> Al's a great actor. <laughs> and so you have to write the speech in such a way that someone like Al will look at it and say, I, I, know, I, I know how to do that. And if you can get the sweet spot, and I have missed cats films, but nothing worse. Nothing you can do about Miss Katz in a film. It's predestination. You can't save it. But if you cast it right, you cast it right into the actor's sweet spot, like I did with Ethan and Oscar. Hmm. Then, um, then it's going to work. You know, The next one I'm doing uh, with Joel Edgerton. Oh, yeah? Who seems to me very much like one of my characters. Yeah, I think, I wonder if... What I'm wondering is if the sweet spot also, like you said, has to do with the timing of where they are in their career to play the kind of role, you know. Yeah, well, they have to be a place in their career where they understand the power of a recessive role. Hmm. You only get to that after you have done a certain amount of quote-unquote acting. Right. And you realize that you can do what you do without you can still get a paycheck without earning it. Uh, <laughs> and so they don't, that's always a sort of thing with these actors. You have to try to get them on a program of an analogy I use is like you're a rocky cliff. So you're there and the waves batter you every single day. Huh. And they try to steal scenes from you and they try to tell you you can't do what you want to do. And but then they go away. Yeah. And you're still there. And you don't have to compete. Trust it. Trust the power of the, the shore, the rocks to endure. Yeah. In the miscastings, do you ever reflect, you know, failure is such a big part of the process. Do you ever reflect back and think, I just got to move on? Or do you think, how will I write differently? Or how does this change my process? Oh, no, no, you, um... How do you handle failure, I guess, is part of my yeah, question. I, mean, I did two hardcore pieces of miscasting. And in both times, I knew it wasn't quite right. But I knew I'd been trying to get the film made, and now I was going to get it made. So with Michael J. Fox and Light of Day, and with Woody Harrelson and The Walker. Hmm. And I remember I was... Reading with Michael J. Fark at the Chateau Marmont, and I called up my agent, and I said, I, I've miscast this movie. We've got to stop. The agent came over and pulled me aside and said, well, how do you know? How do you know until you make it? Well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if I had tried to recast at that point. It's too late, right? Yeah. Well, my, Michael was the you know one of the hottest things going, and the movie would have simply fallen apart. Right. So then you have to decide, can I pull it off? And of course, there's a there's a part of every director which is an alpha. You know, I, I can pull it off. Right. You know, they show you the cage with the lions and they, they give you a chair <laughs> and, a right. and you say, Let me in there. I can make those lions sit up. Yeah. Well, sometimes the lions win. Yeah. Do you, in general, this is this is also kind of, this just gets me thinking this way, where do you find that you have to, 
the the alpha mentality as a writer director that drives your confidence you know do you have where do you find those spots where you think you know like like you look to martin scorsese and say what's missing or you see something and you think who do i need to what do i need to adjust or adapt to or like this is a struggle right here you know filmmaking the kind of movies you make are not easy to get made anymore so it's always got to be a battle and there's got to be so much compromise i guess i'm sort of asking you have to have so much confidence in what you do but you also have to kind of know your limits right yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, I, I finally graduated to Final Cut, so the compromises I make are I make on my own, knowing that um, audiences have certain needs. Yeah, and I'd rather cast a heroic-looking person as an anti-hero than an unheroic-looking one as a hero. Hmm. And that's just you know because I think that's what the audiences prefer too. And and also, you know, I once had this conversation with Marty. So, what's the most exciting thing about being a director or a director? I said, you know, when I first started, this used to terrify me. And now I love it. Which Directing is, it? Oh, okay. Yeah. No, which is, you go out on the set and it's not right. <laughs> You've lit and there's something wrong. Yeah. Whether it's the performance, or the lighting, or the camera move. Something isn't working. And when you're younger, you kind of panic. But when you're older, you just turn to the idea and said, clear the set, give me 20 minutes. And you just sit there, and you know the answer will come to you. Because you've been there before. Yeah. And just sitting there saying, you know, we're going to do this. How? You know. And, and then you call everybody back in, and you say, you know, we, we, we planned to do this whole thing with with multiple cuts and angles and said, you know, we're going to go cowboy. We're going to shoot it handheld one take. Yeah. You, you just have to have enough faith that you can spot that. Now, you yeah. don't always spot it. And, and, and many times in post, you're kicking yourself. <laughs> you think, oh, that first way was right after all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's it. You make it sound like something that's so fun. To suddenly sit there quietly and think, how do I make this work? Instead of the terror that would grip you of, oh, yeah, well, shit, it's the same thing. You know, it's like a stand-up, a stand-up comic when an audience starts to turn on you. That has to be like lifeblood, like oxygen. Mm. You know, just make it come alive. Oh, I'm losing them. Okay, all right. Pushing you to get better a little bit, right? It's like something pushing you to get better. Yeah, but it's also pushing you to find a solution. Yeah. That you didn't think you needed to find. Yeah. That's sort of a creative moment. That's like a right. nexus of creative energy. It's like you yeah. find the moment and then something better comes out of it than you didn't expect. Yeah. Is that true to your writing too? Like you're like, I just I'm look sorry, at this. I mean, I, uh, if I'm writing, I have different paths I will walk you know five minute path ten minute path to think about what I'm going to do next literally walk like as you need a break oh wow and and you think about it and you talk as you walk you know when I was in LA I used to do it in the car and I would just drive around and think and I found that I often got ideas when I went over the train tracks hmm interesting just a subtle disruption 
of your brain function. And I'll let you get across the train. I say, that's it. <laughs> it's got to be a scene with the train now. <laughs> that's really cool. That's drive. Well, driving in LA, walking. I like that. Like you just get away from the material. Take a, a yeah. Loop. When you get along with the material, and you just you start out. You say, "I think this is going to be a five minute walk." You say, "Oh, it works." It's like a <laughs> ten minute walk. <laughs> it, it does sort of start to come to you. Yeah. You just trust that that'll be there as yeah. you get more experienced. Yeah, and if it doesn't, then you're learning something else. Let's maybe the piece doesn't work, or maybe yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have it? Another amazing thing, this will be my last question because we're running out of time. I've really appreciated it. Um, you've, you're prolific in terms of how much you've written and directed over the years. Do you have stuff that you're still like, I really want to do a film like this? Or do you think about it kind of like, I'm still going to continue to explore these, these themes that I've been exploring through all yeah, these different I, mean, I, I have some scripts that, from the past that I would still like to do, but obviously I only had a limited number of films left in me. I have a James Elroy book I adapted that I'd uh, love to do, but uh, you know that's very different for me. That's LA 1950s. I want to see I'll, that one so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll go. <laughs> and uh, But on the other hand, I've gotten pretty good at this one kind of thing, and uh, I'm going to do it again uh, next time, but I, I, you know, I find it changes. So I was doing it, I'm writing the next one. And it's again, you know, a guy in his room, he gets time he's a guard. Only at this time, a couple female characters started merging. Huh. His boss and her grandniece. Interesting. And all of a sudden I had a romantic triangle of younger, middle-aged, older. Yeah, that's definitely a little different. Yeah. And, where I, you've been. and I thought to myself, when I first started going this way, I thought, well, wait a second, this is not your territory. And then I said, wait a second, that's what's good about it. Yeah. (laughs) I like that you pointed out that people try to do Travis Bickle again, and it doesn't work. But instead, (laughs) what you do is you're sort of like, well, where is it today? Like, I have to push it to a new place. And that's where we get something like William Tell, you know? Yeah, I mean, De Niro wanted to uh, do a Taxi Driver 2. This was a good many years ago. And he didn't really want to do it. I think that they probably just offered him a whole big chunk of money. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I sent him away. I said, like, the best dumbest idea ever. <laughs> and they said, well, Bobby wants to do it. Let's have lunch. We have lunch. And I said, Bobby, you know, that a terrible idea. So I think that character was dead, you know, a few months after the film ended. I, he yeah. Not, he, he was on a death trip. It was just a matter of time. And then as we were talking, then at the end of the month, I said, wait a second, Bob. I think he might still be alive. I think he's Ted Kaczynski. I think he's in a cabin somewhere making bombs and writing letters. And he never, never leaves the cabin. But that, of course, the people who are going to spend all the money on the on the taxi driver too are like nah, i don't know if we're writing <laughs> <laughs> we're writing checks for that one <laughs> did de niro like that idea at least was no. he like <laughs> okay well i i didn't know that there was a taxi driver too now i know that it does it could exist <laughs> well yeah well we, we we've worked very hard to keep it from existing we've also worked 
successfully to keep a video game from existing. Oh, no. Because obviously really? it leads itself to a one person shooter game. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there's money, real. And, you know, you just have to say that Scorsese, there's not enough money in this world to be a part of something like that. Wow. Yeah. That is a powerful thing. I didn't yeah. know, but I, but that's a, I, I applaud it. Well, thank you again. It's been amazing. I, right, I've George. loved your work in your films and I appreciate the time greatly. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Paul Schrader for coming on the podcast. It's just amazing to get to talk to somebody with his resume uh, and and to learn as much as we can from him. It was a real pleasure. Uh, I'm impressed with obviously the work, but also his commitment to his values and continuing to try to make the kind of movies he wants to make and believes in and avoid the kinds of commercial things that he thinks are not good for the world. That's something we should all hope to aspire to. As always, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram. We have an amazing video tutorial up on YouTube where we go over how to create really cool visual effects with miniatures all in Adobe, which is pretty awesome. So check that out on our YouTube channel. There's a link in our description. And of course, go over to nofilmschool.com, read about everything happening in the world of filmmaking. And thank you so much for listening.